Book Two, Part One of Herodotus Histories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Histories, Volume One, by Herodotus of Halicarnassus, translated by A. D. Godley. Book Two, Part One, Paragraphs One through Twenty Three. After the death of Cyrus, Cambyses inherited his throne. He was the son of Cyrus and Cassande, the daughter of Pharnapses, for whom Cyrus mourned deeply when she died before him, and had all his subjects mourn also. Cambyses was the son of this woman and of Cyrus. He considered the Ionians and Aeolians slaves inherited from his father, and prepared for an expedition against Egypt, taking with him some of these Greek subjects besides others whom he ruled. Now, before Semeticus became king of Egypt, the Egyptians believed that they were the oldest people on earth. But ever since Semeticus became king and wished to find out which people were the oldest, they have believed that the Phrygians were older than they, and they than everybody else. Semeticus, when he was in no way able to learn by inquiry which people had first come into being, devised a plan by which he took two newborn children of the common people and gave them to a shepherd to bring up among his flocks. He gave instructions that no one was to speak a word in their hearing. They were to stay by themselves in a lonely hut, and in due time the shepherd was to bring goats and give the children these instructions, because he wanted to hear what speech would first come. And in due time the shepherd was to bring goats and give the children their milk and do everything else necessary. Semeticus did this, and gave these instructions, because he wanted to hear what speech would first come from the children, when they were past the age of indistinct babbling. And he had his wish, for one day when the shepherd had done as he was told for two years, both the children ran to him, stretching out their hands and calling, Bekos, as he opened the door and entered. When he first heard this, he kept quiet about it. But when, coming often and paying careful attention, he kept hearing this same word, he told his master at last, and brought the children into the king's presence as required. Semeticus then heard them himself, and asked to what language the word Bekos belonged. He found it to be a Phrygian word, signifying bread. Reasoning from this, the Egyptians acknowledged that the Phrygians were older than they. This is the story which I heard from the priests at Hephaestus' temple at Memphis. The Greeks say, among many foolish things, that Semeticus had the children reared by women whose tongues he had cut out. Besides this story of the rearing of the children, I also heard other things at Memphis in conversation with the priests of Hephaestus. And I visited Thebes and Heliopolis too, for this very purpose, because I wished to know if the people of those places would tell me the same story as the priests at Memphis. For the people of Heliopolis are said to be the most learned of the Egyptians. Now, such stories as I heard about the gods... I am not ready to relate, except their names, for I believe that all men are equally knowledgeable about them, and I shall say about them what I am constrained to say by the course of my history. But as to human affairs, this was the account in which they all agreed. The Egyptians, they said, were the first men who reckoned by years, and made the year consist of twelve divisions of the seasons. They discovered this from the stars, so they said, and their reckoning is, to my mind, a juster one than that of the Greeks. For the Greeks add an intercalary month every other year, so that the seasons agree. But the Egyptians, 
reckoning thirty days to each of the twelve months, add five days in every year, and above the total, and thus the completed circle of seasons is made to agree with the calendar. Furthermore, the Egyptians, they said, first used the names of the twelve gods, whom the Greeks afterwards borrowed from them, and it was they who first assigned to the several gods their altars and images and temples, and the first carved figures on stone. Most of this they showed me, in fact, to be the case. The first human king of Egypt, they said, was Min. In all his time, all of Egypt, except for the Thebaic district, was a marsh. All the country that we now see was then covered by water, north of Lake Moeris, which is seven days' journey up the river from the sea. And I think that their account of the country was true, for even if a man has not heard it before, he can readily see, if he has sense, that that Egypt to which the Greeks sail is land deposited for the Egyptians, the river's gift, not only the lower country, but even the land as far as three days' journey above the lake, which is of the same nature as the other, although the priests did not say this, too. For this is the nature of the land of Egypt. In the first place, when you approach it from the sea, and are still a day's journey from land, if you lay down a sounding line, you will bring up mud from a depth of eleven fathoms. This shows that the deposit from the land reaches this far. Further, the length of the seacoast of Egypt is itself sixty scone of Egypt, that is, if we judge it to be reaching from the Planithi Gulf to the Serbonian Marsh, which is under the Cassian Mountain. Between these there is the length of sixty scone. Men that have scant land measure by feet, those who have more by miles, those who have much land by parasangs, those who have great abundance of it by scone. The parasang is three and three-quarter miles, and the sconis, which is an Egyptian measure, is twice that. By this reckoning, then, the seaboard of Egypt will be four hundred and fifty miles in length. Inland from the sea, as far as Heliopolis, Egypt is a wide land, all flat and watery and marshy. From the sea up to Heliopolis is a journey about as long as the way from the altar of the twelve gods at Athens to the temple of Olympian Zeus at Pisa. If a reckoning is made, only a little difference of length, not more than two miles, will be found between these two journeys, for the journey from Athens to Pisa is two miles short of two hundred, which is the number of miles between the sea and Heliopolis. Beyond and above Heliopolis, Egypt is a narrow land, for it is bounded on one side by the mountains of Arabia, which run north to south, always running south towards the sea called the Red Sea. In these mountains are the quarries that were hewn out for making the pyramids at Memphis. This way, then, the mountains run, and end in the places of which I have spoken. The greatest width from east to west, as I learned by inquiry, is a two-month's journey, and their easternmost boundaries yield frankincense. Such are these mountains. On the side of Libya, Egypt is bounded by another range of rocky mountains, along which are the pyramids. These are all covered with sand, and run in the same direction as those of the Arabian hills that run southward. Beyond Heliopolis there is no great distance, in Egypt that is. The narrow land has a length of only fourteen days' journey up the river. Between the aforesaid mountain ranges the land is level, and where the plain is narrowest it seemed to me that there were no more than thirty miles between the Arabian mountains and those that are called Libyan. Beyond this Egypt is a wide land again. Such is the nature of this country. From Heliopolis to Thebes is nine days' journey by river, and the distance is six hundred and eight miles, or eighty-one scone. This, then, is a full statement of all the distances in Egypt. 
the seaboard is four hundred and fifty miles long, and I will now declare the distance inland from the sea to Thebes. It is seven hundred and sixty-five miles, and between Thebes and the city called Elephantine there are two hundred and twenty-five miles. The greater portion, then, of this country of which I have spoken was land deposited for the Egyptians, as the priests told me, and I myself formed the same judgment. All that lies between the ranges of the mountains above Memphis, to which I have referred, seemed to me to have once been a gulf of the sea, just as the country above Ilion and Tuithrania and Ephesus and the plain of the Meander, to compare these small things with great. For of the rivers that brought down the stuff to make these lands, there was none worthy to be compared for greatness with even one of the mouths of the Nile, and the Nile has five mouths. There are also other rivers, not so great as the Nile, that have had great effects. I could rehearse their names, but principal among them is Echelaus, which, flowing through Arcania and emptying into the sea, has already made half of the Echinades Islands mainland. Now in Arabia, not far from Egypt, there is a gulf extending inland from the sea called Red, whose length and width are such as I shall show. In length, from its inner end out to the wide sea, it is a forty days' journey for a ship rowed by oars, and in breadth it is half a day's journey at the widest. Every day the tides ebb and flow in it. I believe that where Egypt is now, there was once another such gulf. This extended from the northern sea towards Ethiopia and the other, the Arabian Gulf, of which I shall speak, extended from the south towards Syria, and the ends of these gulfs penetrated into the country near each other, but by a little space of land separated them. Now, if the Nile inclined to direct its current into this Arabian Gulf, why should the latter not be silted up by it inside of twenty thousand years? In fact, I expect it would be silted up inside of ten thousand years. Is it to be doubted, then, that in the ages before my birth, a gulf even much greater than this should have been silted up by a river so great and so busy. As for Egypt, then, I credit those who say it, and myself very much believe it to be the case, for I have seen that Egypt projects into the sea beyond the neighboring land, and shells are exposed to view on the mountains, and things are coated with salt, so that even the pyramids show it, and the only sandy mountain in Egypt is that which is above Memphis. Besides, Egypt is like neither the neighboring land of Arabia nor Libya, not even like Syria, for Syrians inhabit the seaboard of Arabia. It is a land of black and crumbling earth, as if it were alluvial deposits carried down the river from Ethiopia. But we know that the soil of Libya is redder and somewhat sandy, and Arabia and Syria are the lands of clay and stones. This, too, that the priests told me about Egypt is a strong proof. When... Maoris was king. If the river rose as much as thirteen feet, it watered all of Egypt below Memphis. Maoris had not been dead nine hundred years when I heard this from the priests. But now, if the river does not rise at least twenty-six or twenty-five feet, the land is not flooded. And, in my opinion, the Egyptians, who inhabit the lands lower down the river than Lake Maoris, especially what is called the Delta, if this land of theirs rises in the same proportion, and broadens likewise in extent, and the Nile no longer floods it, will forever after be in the same straits as they themselves once said the Greeks would be. For, after learning that all the Greek land is watered by rain, but not by river water like theirs, they said that one day the Greeks would be let down by what they counted on, and miserably starve, meaning that if heaven sent no rain for the Greeks, and afflicted them with drought, 
the Greeks will be overtaken by famine, for there was no other source of water for them except Zeus alone. And this prediction of the Egyptians about the Greeks was true enough. But now let me show the prospect for the Egyptians themselves, if, as I have already said, the country below Memphis, for it is this which rises, should increase in height in the same proportion as formerly. Will not the Egyptians who inhabit it go hungry? As there is no rain in their country, and the river will be unable to inundate their fields. At present, of course, there are no people, either in the rest of Egypt or in the whole world, who live from the soil with so little labor. They do not have to break the land up with the plow, or hoe, or do any other work that any other man do to get a crop. The river rises of itself, and waters the fields, and then sinks back again. Then each man sows his field, and sends swine into it to tread down the seed, and waits for the harvest. Then he has the swine thresh the grain, and so garners it. Now, if we agree with the opinion of the Ionians, who say that only the delta is Egypt, and that its seaboard reaches from the so-called watchtower of Perseus, forty scoinae from the psalters of Pelusium, while inland it stretches as far as the city of Kirkasaurus, where the Nile divides and flows to Pelusium and Cannabis, and that all the rest of Egypt is partly Libya and partly Arabia. If we follow this account, we can show that there was once no land for the Egyptians, for we have seen that, as the Egyptians themselves say, and I myself judge, the delta is alluvial land, and but lately, so to speak, came into being. Now, if there was once no land for them, it was an idle notion that they were the oldest nation on earth, and they need not have made that trial to see what language the children would first speak. I maintain, rather, that the Egyptians did not come into existence together with what the Ionians call the Delta, but have existed since the human race came into being, and as the land grew in extent, there were many of them who stayed behind, and many who spread down over it. Be that as it may, the Thebian district, a land of 765 miles in circumference, was in the past called Egypt. If, then, our judgment of this is right, the Ionians are in error concerning Egypt. But if their opinion is right, then it is the plain that they and the rest of the Greeks cannot truly reckon. When they divide the whole of the earth into three parts, Europe, Asia, and Libya, they must add to these a fourth part, the delta of Egypt, if it belongs neither to Asia nor to Libya. For by showing the Nile is not the river that separates Asia and Libya, the Nile divides at its apex of this delta, so that this land must be between Asia and Libya. We leave the Ionians' opinion aside, and our own judgment about the matter is this. Egypt is all that country which is inhabited by Egyptians, such as Cilicia and Assyria are the countries inhabited by Cilicians and Assyrians. And we know of no boundary line, rightly so called, below Asia and Libya, except the borders of the Egyptians. But if we follow the belief of the Greeks, we shall consider all Egypt, commencing from the cataracts and the city of Elephantine, to be divided into two parts, and to claim both names, the one a part of Libya, the other a part of Asia. For the Nile, beginning from the cataracts, divides Egypt into two parts as it flows to the sea. Now, as far as the city of Kirkasaurus, the Nile flows in one channel, but after that it parts into three. One of these, which is called the Pelusian Mouth, flows east, the second flows west, and is called the Canabic Mouth. But the direct channel of the Nile, 
when the river in its downward course reaches the apex of the delta, flows thereafter clean through the middle of the delta into the sea. In this is seen the greatest and most famous part of its waters, and it is called the Sabinitic Mouth. There are also two channels which separate themselves from the Sabinitic and so flow into the sea, the name of Sciatic and Mendazian. The Bulbatine and Bucolic Mouths are not natural, but excavated channels. The response of the Oracle of Amman, in fact, bears witness to my opinion that Egypt is of such an extent as I have argued. I learned this by inquiry after my judgment was already formed about Egypt. The men of the cities of Maria and Apis, in the part of Egypt bordering on Libya, believing themselves to be Libyans and not Egyptians, and disliking the injunction of the religious laws that forbade them to eat cow's meat, sent to Amman, saying that they had no part of, or lot with, Egypt. For they lived, they said, outside the delta, and did not consent to the ways of its people, and they wished to be allowed to eat all foods. But the god forbade them. All the land, he said, watered by the Nile in its course was Egypt, and all who lived lower down from the city of Elephantine, and drank the river's water, were Egyptians. Such was the oracle given to them. When the Nile is in flood, it overflows not only the delta, but also the lands called Libyan and Arabian, as far as two days' journey from either bank in places, and sometimes more than this, sometimes less. Concerning its nature, I could not learn anything either from the priests or from any others, yet I was anxious to learn from them why the Nile comes down with a rising flood for a hundred days from the summer solstice, and when this number of days is passed, sinks again with a diminishing stream, so that the river is low for the whole winter until the summer solstice again. I was not able to get any information from any of the Egyptians regarding this, when I asked them what power the Nile has to be contrary in nature to all other rivers. I wished to know this, and asked, also, why no breezes blew from it as from every other river. But some of the Greeks, wishing to be notable for cleverness, put forward three opinions about this river, two of whom I would not even mention except just to show what they are. One of them maintains that the Eastian winds are the cause of the river being in flood, because they hinder the Nile from entering into the sea. But there are many times when the Eastian winds do not blow, yet the Nile does the same as before. And further, if the Eastian winds were the cause, then the other rivers which flow contrary to those winds would be affected like the Nile, and even more so, since being smaller they have a weaker current. Yet there are many rivers in Syria, and many in Libya, and they behave nothing like the Nile. The second opinion is less grounded on knowledge than the previous, though it is more marvelous to the ear. According to it, the river affects what it does because it flows from the ocean, which flows round the whole world. The second opinion is by far the most plausible, yet the most erroneous of all. It has no more truth in it than the others. According to this, the Nile flows from where snows melt, but it flows from Libya through the mists of Ethiopia, and comes out into Egypt. How can it flow from snow then, seeing that it comes from the hottest places to the lands which are for the most part cooler? In fact, for a man who can reason about such things, the principal and strongest evidence that the river is unlikely to flow from snows is that the winds blowing from Libya and Ethiopia are hot. In the second place, the country is rainless and frostless, but after snow has fallen, it has to rain within five days, so that if it snowed, it would rain in these lands. 
and thirdly, the men of the country are black because of the heat. Moreover, kites and swallows live there all year round, and cranes come every year to those places to winter there, flying from the wintry weather of Scythia. Now, were there but the least fall of snow in this country, through which the Nile flows and where it rises, none of these things would happen, as necessity proves. The opinion about ocean is grounded in obscurity and needs no disproof, for I know of no ocean river, and I suppose that Homer or some older poet invented this name and brought it into his poetry. End of Book Two, Part One